Welcome back to episode 5 of The Hold All with me, Rory O'Connor. Today, Elias Davidson about the missing and counterfeit evidence of 9-11. I'm publishing pretty late on the day of September the 11th, 2019, which I've been reproaching myself for. But on the other hand, it's been kind of interesting to see how people, ordinary people, people who aren't sceptical about the whole story, are still talking about it. And I've been kind of encouraged by that to to think that maybe this has been worthwhile. I've been kind of thinking this is going to be my last podcast about this particular topic. I still think it will be. But there is still public interest, naturally, when the day rolls around. And uh, I think this topic is one where... um, Owen Barfield's, I've I've made a podcast about Owen Barfield, but Owen Barfield's law of reading does come into play in a different way. Uh, His Barfield's law of reading was those who need it don't read it. Those who read it don't need it. So I would hope to get to some people of that uh, unskeptical public uh, to reach them, uh, the people who don't read it, but need it. I hope some people hear, some of those people hear this. And hello. Um, and I hope it maintains your interest despite, unfortunately, the sound quality in some parts of it. Um, I think the material is really great, uh, but unfortunately, and I would hope to, I you know, this has been a real learning experience. It's good enough, but it's not quite perfect when Elias is talking. So I just... It's good enough, really. Um, Elias and I talked about the way that the United States government has not provided evidence that the named hijackers were on the planes and about the fact that the FBI has not even definitively stated that the supposed named hijackers really did it. We talked about the dodgy crash scene in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where United 93 is said to have crashed, and about the good evidence found in airline and official submissions to the 9-11 Commission that... Bizarre as it sounds, two of the planes were flying past the time of their supposed crash. In other words, that the planes may have been doubled. Um, Elias talked about international criminal law, which obligates states to investigate crimes against persons, which he says the United States has failed to do. And he also talked about the larger strategic context of 9-11, among much else, and among much else that he didn't talk about. Because this topic always gets some kind of what about kind of wankers, I will say that we didn't talk about the manner of the World Trade Center collapses or about the intelligence angles. And that's fine. So who is Elias Davidson? First of all, he's a very responsible researcher who bases his work in official documents with their strengths and weaknesses and in mainstream reporting. I've checked as many of the statements in his books as time has allowed and it's all checked out. His book on this topic is called Hijacking America's Mind on 9-11 and among a number of other titles he's also written The Betrayal of India about the 2008 Mumbai massacre and since he lives in Germany a book in German about the 2016 Berlin truck attack Der Gelbe Bus, The Yellow Bus. Apart from all that, as he says in his author biography, he's pursued research in and published articles in legal journals on international law, human rights law and international criminal law. And in the 1990s, he researched the effect of US sanctions on the Iraqi population. His website is juskogens.org, J-U-S-C-O-G-E-N-S dot org. Jus Kogans is a principle in international law of a norm from which no derogation is permitted, and that gives some idea of his emphasis. 
as ever, if you like the podcast, please do think about subscribing to my Patreon account, patreon.com slash Rory O'Connor. As I say on the website, my website, roryoconnor.xyz, I do put heart, mind, soul and time into these productions and to if it if it strikes you, if it moves you, if it interests you, if you derive benefit from it, I really would appreciate a small donation, a dollar a month um, or more if you can find it. Thanks. Here we go. The first question actually I would like to ask you is... Um, you have an interest in human rights. In the nineties, you weren't ex- you were researching uh, Iraqi sanctions and the effect of UN sanctions on Iraq on the population there. So it does seem like a bit of a kind of a, a right angle, a turn to 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 start delving into uh, hidden aspects of nine eleven. How how did that come about? The reason was I wasn't uh, uh, after nine eleven. I was not particularly interested in uh, in the events. I believed, like many people in the left, that it was a blowback by Muslims, uh, a blowback against the United States policies. So I was not basically interested in researching. Uh, only after I got into my hands a book by Thierry Messon, a French a scholar, uh, somebody lent me a book by him. He was one of the first truthers. He showed that the official legend on 9-11 was wrong. I was not so interested by, by curiosity. I read the book and I found it very uh, strange, all what he wrote, because it conflicted completely with what I believed. So I began to to look at his footnotes, at his sources, whether they were really genuine. And to my surprise, I found that his sources were all genuine, clean, and uh, credible. So it, I, uh, I became very interested uh, to know why this discrepancy. And I began to research myself 9-11. So that... That's how it began, basically. Why should people actually still be interested in 9-11? Well, <clears throat> that's really simple to answer. Uh, basically, the entire war, the, all the wars which uh, were uh, uh, perpetrated since 9-11, uh, including particularly the war on Afghanistan, continues until today. I mean, the occupation of Afghanistan, which was basically based on 9-11, is a continuing problem. Uh, Another problem, which is still continues today, even more so, is the Big Brother Society, which basically was a a result of 9-11. So if we are looking at many of the world's uh, calamities which we are um, which we are experiencing today we can trace many of these calamities to the 9-11 operation so it is basically not a finished issue 9-11 was basically the source of many of the problems we have today 
And if we would like to solve those problems or to deal with them, we have to understand that 9-11 was the trigger of all these problems. Yeah, uh, for example, uh, the, the mass surveillance program, the warrantless wiretapping program, really was just the very next month, or by my recollection, maybe it was in September 2001. It, that's when it all began. It, there was a, a, an authorization from President Bush was signed or whatever, and it just began and it ramped up. Uh, kind of suspiciously quickly, you know. You live in Germany and there's an interesting word in German uh, which we don't have an exact equivalent of, Feindbild, which is enemy image. And the context in which you place 9-11 is as a word that de- the the lack of a the lack of an enemy the lack of an an image of an enemy since the beginning of the 1990s with the decline of the Soviet Union. There was a need for a new enemy. Could you talk about that? Yes. Um, one of the problems facing the American establishment, and particularly the military-industrial complex, was the demise of the Soviet Union. What, what was this problem? Any superpower or any big state has to define its foreign policy. Now, the foreign policy of the United States, and more generally of NATO through 40 years has been to look at the Soviet Union as the main enemy or or opponent of the West. Everything military and and geostrategy was based on this paradigm, a paradigm of the Soviet Union and the communist world. From one day to the other, that paradigm disappeared. And the United States and NATO had no paradigm on which to base its foreign policy. They had no enemy, no focus for their foreign policy. They they could not even decide how they will continue to build up the armed forces because they did not know who will be the new enemy. Because without an enemy, there would be no uh, justification for a big, big, uh, military force. So they began searching for a new replacement enemy. And they did not find anybody. No country, no state in the world could replace the Soviet Union at that time. China was not yet powerful enough to be sold to the American public, to the taxpayer, as a real immediate and dangerous enemy Uh, which would justify uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of military expenditures. And the American public were really happy to get um, a peace dividend after the Cold War ended. They wanted now money to be spent on social services, on the infrastructure and so forth, to be deflected from the armed forces and to more useful things. But this was... A, a huge problem for all those who built their career and their interests on the uh, Soviet menace. So there was a huge and desperate search for a new enemy within the American elite. This is not what I am guessing. You can even read it in American literature or the literature about foreign policy which was uh, published in the early 90s, 
and even one book was called simply an entire book called In Search of Enemies. So this was not a, even a secret that they were looking for enemies. Uh, we don't know when the new enemy was found and who found it, but I guess that it was found around 1991 or 92 in the garb of the Islamic global terrorist menace. Now, why was this enemy found and what did it represent? First of all, this enemy did not exist. There was no such an enemy before it was um, decided to be created. In 1991-2, Islamic terrorism did not exist as such. There were, of course, terrorist attacks in Palestine and different countries, but there was nothing of the kind which we are calling global Islamic terrorism. This phenomenon had to be created. And the American establishment said, okay, we will create that enemy because we need one. And they had no difficulty of doing that. And the reasons why they chose this enemy, there are at least four reasons. First, the American public was already indoctrinated through 20 or 30 years of Hollywood fare to look at Arabs and Muslims as bad people. There are, in fact, books, entire books dedicated to how Hollywood was painting Arabs and Muslims for decades. So it was not difficult to sell the bad Muslim to the, Arab, to the American population. Secondly, about 70 to 80% of oil world or world oil resources are located under the feet of Muslims. So if you can get, if you can call a Muslim country as a support of terrorism, you find a good justification for military intervention in order to fight the terrorists. So Muslim terrorism was a very good idea. Thirdly, Islam cannot disappear like a regime. You can, for example, change a regime in Iran or North Korea, and then you don't have an enemy anymore. But Islam will stay for the next 1,000 years, so the enemy can be permanent. And fourth, there are, strong, there are big Muslim communities in the West and by painting Muslims as suspects, you could justify mass surveillance of the population on the pretext that you have to uh, monitor Islamic uh, sleeping cells and you have to know who they are. So there are many advantages, tactical and strategical advantages for that new enemy. So this enemy was built up in the 90s, but it was not sufficient to build the enemy because nobody will believe in an enemy just because he was told in the papers that this is an enemy. There should have also be some event, some extremely traumatic event, which could be attributed to that enemy. And that event was 9-11. So this was basically the culmination of the build-up of that enemy. And from this point on, 
it was easy for the United States government to uh, promote the global war on terrorism, which many countries joined. Uh, yeah, um, I, actually, one of the most striking things I found as regards media manipulation while looking at the sources in your book was when you talked about the fact that um, the FBI had said that there was no, quote, quote no hard evidence linking um Osama bin Laden to the attack uh, to, to 9-11 and uh, subsequently um, I learned through a bit of googling the this was a, this was the story in as it were the non-mainstream media this thing about there being no hard evidence in 2006 and I discovered that there had been uh, subsequent to this uh, a story in the Washington Post which um, said something like conspiracy theorists are um, you know have been ignited by the fact that uh, the FBI hasn't charged uh, Osama bin Laden in connection with 9/11 unlike with say the cold attack or whatever and you know but this is just a normal procedure because um, we don't always bring charges but eventually you know these charges could be could be brought and what was missing from that Washington Post article was, the original shocking quote no hard evidence there was a kind of that quote was as, as it were redacted from the article and uh, it didn't have to be confronted so there was a kind of propagandistic uh, refutation of um, what uh, was being pointed out by people who were pointing out that there was no hard evidence uh, there was no direct quotation of the killer quote and also it was just a kind of you know rebuttal without substance well, I, may I add to that, if you already mentioned that, this is, of course, all what you're saying is absolutely correct. But let me add something else. We're not even talking about evidence of this kind. Um, just on the day on which the United States attacked Afghanistan, the representative of the United States in the Security Council sent a letter to the president of the Security Council of the United Nations explaining the United States attack on Afghanistan. And in that letter, they did not one word connected to any relation of Osama bin Laden to 9-11. So you were talking about sourcing, about Thierry Maison's uh, sourcing. Uh, can you describe your sourcing? What evidence you looked at? Well, <clears throat> I began to look at 9-11 like any a criminal investigator would do. I just, uh, I didn't consider 9-11 from the geopolitical uh, aspect in the beginning. Uh, I did it from a forensic perspective, asking simply like any investigator would, uh, what were the tools of crime? Who was present as a scene of crime? Who were the victims? And questions of this kind, which normally are, are, are um, the first questions any criminal investigator would um, address. So one of the first questions was, where, uh, what was it, where the tools of crime? Now, we were told that the tools of crime were aircraft. aircraft. So I said, okay, fine. Let's accept that. I don't have any information 
contrary to that. But then the question is, who was present at the door of, of the at the scene of crime, who would be able to commit those crimes? And so, I uh, read that the the perpetrators were nineteen Arab Muslims who were present in the planes, who hijacked the planes, and piloted them to their destinations. So I began to, I assumed or presumed that the U.S. authorities would have presented evidence that these 19 people had boarded those planes, that their bodies had been identified at the crash sites, that somebody has seen them at the airport, that there are video recordings from these people at the airports, and so forth. So I began to search for all these items of evidence. And to my great surprise, I did not find any of these items of evidence, not one. It was a huge surprise to me after having basically combed all the, all the sources which I could find. I could not find a single piece of evidence that these 19 people had it all boarded on these airplanes. This was my first discovery. Yeah, and um, I think it's actually worth circling back to that, what you said about about approaching it as a kind of criminal investigation, because I think people almost find that kind of, almost be, be beside the point, you know, I mean, it, that, that rather that, that was kind of evaded by by the US government uh, pretty effectively. And there was what you kind of call a very quick uh, propagandistic establishment of guilt. Right on the day of 9-11, accusations were, were pretty, were directed towards who was guilty. Uh, maybe you could talk about that, uh, that process. Could you uh, precise your question? Sure. Um, the, uh, what, I, what I'm saying is that on the day of 9-11, that th- that matter of treating it as a criminal investigation, as a kind of a matter of going forensically through evidence uh, uh, suggesting who might be guilty, was sidestep, was was evaded by the United States government. Instead, there was a very clear pointing of the finger very quickly. Maybe you could talk about what you call the propagandistic establishment of guilt rather than uh, a forensic establishment of guilt. Well, uh, the United States government uh, or let's well the 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 political class let's put it this way the political class of the united states basically decided uh, already on the day of the events that it was an attack upon the united states from abroad that it was uh, conducted by muslim terrorists and that the world trade center buildings uh, collapsed because of fire and the impact of airlines. So this decision was taken, this determination, these factual determinations were made before any investigation. These factual determinations were politically motivated. They had nothing to do with the facts. And uh, because of that, I assume that these factual determinations were made before 9-11. It was basically the decision to 
attribute these attacks to Muslim hijackers. This was a legend which was built before 9-11 and which was propagated throughout the world. Yeah, so uh, right, right. The following day, as you as you point out, there was a House of a House of Representatives resolution saying that you know terrorists had attacked, uh, that the nation was entitled, you know, that these were intended to weaken the nation's resolve at these attacks, and that there was a an entitlement to respond, and international terrorism was was blamed. These were all massive assumptions, uh, rather than being proven at that stage, and also, for example. On the 1st of October, another thing that you point out is that the State Department's briefing to foreign governments about 9-11 says that the US is not obliged to make any kind of showing as a prerequisite to the exercise of its right of self-defense. So there were, as regards Afghanistan and 9-11. So these were all massive jumpings to conclusions, probably with strategic uh, considerations underlying them. So, okay, well, I didn't mean to begin with getting into some of that evidence that you were talking about uh, or, or the lack of evidence one and and the tools of crime and so on the, the the fbi's naming of the hijackers could you go through the problems with that the supposed the alleged hijackers could you go through the problems with that well the fbi uh, three day, three days after the events uh, issued a list of 19 persons uh, with names, just their names, not uh, not not uh, photographs, just the names, which they said were suspected to be the hijackers, the hijackers of 9-11. They were considered to be, uh, yeah, suspects. Uh, these names which were um, issued on that day, most of the names did not have a birth date, there were no basically no identification of these peoples. There were only names, and in some cases, uh, some alleged birth date. Uh, however, before that day, before the 14th of September, there were many changes in these names which appeared in the newspapers. So basically, we don't know from where these names appeared because these names don't appear on any certified uh, passenger manifest. So were these names invented? We don't know. And how we don't know from where these, these names appeared. And then about uh, two weeks later, the FBI issued all the photographs of these people. And on that day, uh, the FBI even said that they are not certain about the identity of these people. And this uncertainty has, re has remained on the FBI website. So until today, the official position of the FBI is we don't know who these people are. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. And I think it's worth, uh, again, uh, repeating what you said about no passenger manifests, um, which is also extraordinary. One of the main, um, sorry, the only place where, uh, at least in principle, the the government would have had to um, present evidence and 
at least in theory, defend itself was the trial of Zacharias Musawi in 2006. And it actually did not present any authenticated flight manifest and has never done so. And you actually point out that during the Musawi trial, a really strange operation happened where Misawi was, um, I hadn't heard this before, stipulated to uh, agree to all the evidence that was presented, as it were. Um, maybe to, it might have been to, you know, to save his own skin, uh, to remain alive. But he, he, was, he was induced to agree not to contest all this evidence. But, so no flight manifests. And then there are other problems with boarding passes, the lack of boarding passes actually being presented in evidence and so on. I think all these things are actually need to be treated with the kind of, you know, without not not to be kind of, you know, saying, oh, well, how, how, how important is this? You know, really, as I think people are inclined perhaps to do uh, maybe a little opportunistically, it, it needs to kind of hit you in the face the way it ought to hit you in the face. No, no evidence has been presented for these things. Sorry. Well, uh, may I may I just interject here? Uh, if yes. I will, if I will claim somewhere, or if suppose your government will claim that your father is a murderer, and suppose or your grandfather, yeah. let's say your grandfather yeah. who is already dead, that he killed his your grandmother. Now you know that your grandfather did not kill your grandmother. You would be offended. You would demand from the government evidence. Or you will uh, in, in, you will institute uh, a libel suit against the government. Now the United States government has been accusing nineteen people of mass murder. Now it is the duty of a government who makes such accusations to present evidence. If it does not do that, he does not only. Uh, uh, um, uh, how do you call it? violate its democratic uh, obligations towards its own people. It is uh, basically acting absolutely in an immoral way towards the families of these people who have been who have who are disappeared. The United States government, it's not me who has to uh, or or anybody of the public who has to prove who committed 9-11. It is the United States government who bears the obligations under human rights law, under international uh, criminal law, to prove its accusations. And if does, if does not, if it does not uh, uh, fulfill this obligation, it creates an immediate suspicion about uh, suppressing the information and shielding the criminals. This is the normal, um, normal, uh, logical outcome of the fact that the U.S. government has never produced any such evidence. And I think it's worth saying that um, because I, I I do like to get into the into at least some aspects of the detail here that that the kind of uh, the, the the fraudulent operation uh, that's going on here is relatively sophisticated because although i had just said there are no there are no passenger manifests accurately there are no passenger manifests 
there are say passenger lists where you know in the Musawi trial there were lists of of passengers uh, on on the uh, flights um but they weren't authenticated original you know made by american airlines and united airlines at the time of boarding that's the problem i i would actually invite you to talk specifically about one of the hijackers um hani hanjour and more generally speaking uh, all of the elements that are all of the elements of the supposed story about him that are problematic but i'll just begin by pointing out that um you you raised the point that um according to the washington post and i think the 9-11 commission report as well if i remember correctly and um, that he may not have had a ticket because he was not on the flight manifest present oh, sorry not on the uh, passenger list uh, the flight manifest uh, as far as the Washington Post knew and like it says we have not been able to determine if Hani Hanjour checked in at the main ticket counter now this is extraordinary he would have to have kind of you know snuck himself on supposedly uh, it, you know not very not very wise if you're trying to not attract attention but the whole story of Hani Hanjour and you can take it as far as you like is similarly extraordinary uh, please do tell us about it well I I would uh... I would prefer to to uh, to go a little bit one step back and discuss the idea of these passenger lists because the Hani Hanjour story is is basically very well known within the 9/11 truth movement and I don't think that I can add very much to it but I think it it is it can be used as a red herring much more important is the fact that in law, in criminal law, those who make accusations have to produce evidence. And a computer printout without signature, without a document, without a chain of custody is no evidence. So what was presented at the Musawi trial, uh, anybody can uh, produce this kind of evidence on his private computer. It's, it's not. It's not evidence. Any any court of justice would consider that as as uh, inadmissible, and in fact, in the Musawi trial, the court did not use that kind of material in order to prosecute and to judge Musawi. It was just introduced to the trial, but it was never referred to as evidence. So we can basically disregard these kind of materials. Uh, what uh, any kind of evidence of this kind, which uh, would have, have any legal meaning, would have to be certified by the person who generated the particular document, whether it is a list, a manifest, a video, or whatever it is. You have to have a person who said, I generated that particular piece of evidence at this and this date, and he would do so under oath in a trial. This would be uh, acceptable, admissible evidence. But we don't have even anything resembling that, not even a person who admitted that to a newspaper. The airliners, the airlines are not even ready to acknowledge that they have authentic passenger lists. So we have not even the minimal, I'm not talking about a legal 
if not generally, uh, the minimal evidence which we would expect to exist. And this is, I think, a very important thing. So when I say that there exists no evidence, I mean it literally. There exists not a shred of evidence that 19 Muslim hijackers had anything to do with 9-11, period. There is no more anything to discuss about it. And I just, just would like to add that I met uh, many years ago a leading journalist of The Guardian in London. I met him in a cocktail party in the London School of Economics. And one day before, he wrote an editorial in The Guardian saying that 15, 15 of the hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. So I asked him, how do you know? Well, he said, everybody knows it. It's clear. Everybody, it's just, it's just clear. It is evidence. So I told him that I will pay him 10,000 pounds sterling if he could provide me evidence of this within two weeks. He turned and ran away. So he didn't want to get 10,000 pounds. He got frightened. Sure. Uh, that was uh, Richard Norton Taylor, for what it's worth. Uh, security correspondent, I think. <laughs> I just thought I'd name the name. So I think, n- nonetheless, um, you're, you're right. The, the, there is that point of, like, it, it's, it's the obligation is on the, the accuser to, to provide um, evidence. But it is worth, as it were, debunking some of the some of the some of the false stories that are put about and okay so I mean just I'll take one thing that you've pointed out that uh, there's supposed kind of video evidence of 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 Muhammad Atta who's the main the most famous kind of face among the hijackers who's supposed to have been the pilot who flew the first plane into what is it I think the North Tower uh, 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 the ver- the very first uh, hit uh, of world trade of world on the world trade center and he is supposed to you know there's supposed to be evidence of him um a, a, you know going passing security b- before go- getting on planes cctv footage uh, even though as you say kind of confronting all this massive evidence can be problematic it's still worth saying what are the problems here <laughs> well first of all uh these there is a clip of two people um, which were shown on TV and it was uh, the accompanying text was that this is a TV clip from Mohammed Atta and his companion passing security check at the airport. Usually they wouldn't tell you on the TV which airport it was. Well, it was not Boston Airport from which um, uh, American Airlines uh, flight number 11 flew away. It was a clip from Portland Airport in Maine on the early morning of 9-11. Now, this is one thing. The question is, why was a clip from Portland and not from Boston? The first answer is that there were no security cameras in Boston. So Mohammed Atta was driven to Portland to be shown on TV. That's one. Secondly, the persons who were shown on, on this clip, we are told that Muhammad Atta was somebody else. 
how do they know? How do they know? The picture, first of all, is blurred. Secondly, Mohammed Atta, who studied in Germany, has never been in the United States. So it was a Mohammed Atta number two. Now the question is, who was this Mohammed Atta number two? Did that Mohammed Atta number two board the plane in Boston? No, because there is no evidence. So the entire story is basically a joke, or if we could, we can also say it was part of the propaganda operation to sell the 9-11 operation as the Islamic terrorist attack. And then uh, there, were, there was other CCTV footage of uh, the supposed Khalid Amidar and Naf al-Hazmi passing through Dulles Airport. Problems again. Yes, we have the same problems there. It is even more stupid. I mean, they should, they should if they want to make, uh, if they want to stage uh, false uh, videos, they should do it much, much better than they did there. They were very, very incompetent in creating this video. For example, this video from Dallas Airport lacks time and hour. So we don't even know yeah. when it was made. Unlike all other security footage, unlike, you know, stuff that you get in a store, in a, in a shop uh, in your local town, there was no uh, time or, you know, uh, camera ID on it. Remarkable stuff. In any case, the entire story is so full of holes then that one uh, wonders whether the American uh, perpetrators and the operations, those who really designed 9-11, were they so incompetent or were they rather reckless because they believed that they could sell all their junk to the population? You talked about the um, the tools of the, of the supposed hijacking of the crime, and um, we can take that right up to the to the crash sites. I think it's worth talking about the United ninety three. United ninety three was supposedly the last plane that came to uh, came to harm, the, as the official story goes, because it was so late. Um, the, uh, the passengers on board became aware of. Uh, the crashes uh, on the World Trade Center and decided that there was uh, that they had to do something. They had to react, and basically, the, uh, as the story goes, uh, they brought the plane down. Whether they got into the cockpit or not, they they were supposed to have. You know, the, maybe it was that the, the supposed hijackers crashed into um, a field in Pennsylvania, um, in Somerset County. Because they decided, and basically an abortive mission, um, and it was supposed to be an attack on some target in Washington. And but the crash site seems to have been, by general can, consent, extraordinary. Um, not like any other plane crash site of the type we know from television. It, it's worth talking about that. Could you do so? Well, United uh, Airlines Flight ninety three, as you said, was. Uh, according to the timetable or the timeline of the FBI and the 9-11 Commission, the last uh, aircraft which departed from New Jersey, from New, New Jersey International Airport, or New York, I'm sorry, New York. Well, okay, the, according to the official story, it crashed on a field in Pennsylvania near Shanksville. And there are some debate when it's, whether it's crashed at 10.03 or 10.06. Uh, 
And these debates has been bewildering some people uh, initially. But this doesn't concern us here. What concerned us here is the fact that many people came to the so-called crash site because they heard a big explosion and saw some smoke. So they came within, say, 10 minutes, half an hour, 15 minutes, they came there and they did not see anything which rem reminds them of an air aircraft crash. No seats, no uh, engines, no uh, fuselage, uh, there was no smell of uh, gasoline, uh, they didn't see any bodies, there was nothing which reminded them of an air aircraft crash. And there were not one or two or three people, there were dozens of people who came there and they were very, very surprised. There were even journalists who came from far away and they said the same thing. Now, all these, um, all these um, testimonies are uh, recorded in my book, which basically uh, you didn't mention yet. My book, the names of my book is Hijacking America's Mind on 9-11. It was published in New York 2013. And it is basically the only book which goes deep into all these issues. So I, those who are interested to know more about these issues, I highly recommend to get a copy of that book. So in that book, I uh, cite uh, about a dozen or more eyewitnesses with full names who came there and said, we didn't see anything reminding us of an aircraft. And interestingly enough, none of these witnesses were asked by the 9-11 Commission to testify. Um, and I'll not, I, I'm glad you mentioned your book. I'll also mention that on your website, you have all the underlying uh, documentation, uh, original sources from uh, online newspapers and so on, uh, very readily available. And um, it, I, so it's you can see where all the material you're uh, basing the book on uh, comes from. And let me let me add, in the book, somebody who gets a book, in the book you'll find a number which provides you a direct access to the source document. You don't have to look for the source document, New York Times or whatever. You just get it directly. But you have to get my book for that. Sure. So um, the... Yeah, so you do. It's worth quoting some of those comments about the crash site from people who were there, and these are coming from, say, the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. You know, to whatever the the following day, or you know, the thirteenth or fourteenth of September, they say things like, "Unbelievable, the plane is pretty much disintegrated. Nothing left but scorched trees." Or you know, tiny pieces of debris, and and the site basically. The, what's supposed to have happened is, you know, what's alleged to have happened is the plane cra crashed into crashed into a hole. Then the hole kind of swallowed it up, and there were, and, and all there was left were tiny little pieces here. Now, I'm not a physicist, so and I I always get very cherry of all these problems of you know physics, but it is not it's not very plausible. And then 
from there being no recognisable plane debris, what what happens is that three days later, on the 14th of September, various things start to be discovered. And it bears, genuinely, all the hallmarks of planted evidence. Yes, I would like to add, uh, first of all, that, as you said, um, after a couple of days, all kinds of... Uh, items, personal items belonging to the passengers began to be found at the crash site in mint condition, not even charred. Uh, yeah, it's worth saying, I'll just interrupt you there. It, it was it was amazing to me to see the evidence uh, presented in the Musawi trial of a, of a red bandana. This was supposed to have been in an air crash where it, terrible things had happened. Uh, it was completely disintegrated. But this red bandana looked like it had just been in the wash. It wasn't evidence, really. Like, sorry, go on. Well, it is basically uh, 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 an attack on common, on common, on common sense, on the common sense of the public to tell people that we could find all kinds of paper documents of people, but the people could not be found. It is ridiculous. Anybody who would just uh, read these two facts. We didn't find the body, but we find found his uh, his uh, say uh, uh, passport. You know, the body was disintegrated, but the passport survived. <laughs> you know, it's 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 so ridiculous. But this is exactly what the guy, American government believes that the people will buy, and the American government is absolutely right. People don't think. Now, another thing is that about 11 days later, after the crash, after the incident, the FBI told the world that they recovered 95% of the plane from the hole. Now, they claimed that. But nobody was entitled to see the recovered (laughs) debris or to photograph or film the recovery. That was all secret. Mm. And there was a group, there was a team from a German TV station which went to New Jersey to and talked to the FBI and they wanted to film the debris. But they had to return to Germany without any possibility of doing so. So the entire story about the crash of United Airlines 93 is a, is a stale joke. It is not. It is a joke. However, it came out uh, later through uh, documents, so official documents, that United Airlines ninety three was still air um, air bound. Uh, it was still flying about seven minutes after the alleged crash time. I'll t- I'll tell you what I'll, I will uh, I, I'm going to get to that soon, but I think I'll just fi- finish up with the crash site, uh, the supposed crash site, by underlying by just underlining various uh, strands of things that you were talking about there. For example, the ca- the county coroner uh, Wallace Miller, Wally Miller, said it was as if the plane had stopped and let the passengers off before it crashed. We couldn't find any any bodies, um, or any human remains, and. Another thing was that, um, I mean, for example, we all, I actually remember as a pretty young child, I mean, 10 years old or whatever it was, that during the TWA, when the TWA crash, 800 crash happened off the coast of New York, 
the, there was a reconstruction of the plane. You know, there was there was television footage of of you know a plane being reconstructed. This didn't, and again, this all happened. This didn't happen. There was no, you know, every we we didn't see anything like that. The uh, also the the crash site was very very heavily um, securitized. Nobody could come in observe uh, what was going on. This wasn't to protect the integrity of the crash site because that could have been done a lot more simply. And also, I think it's worth just saying that we do have instances of evidence being planted at crash sites. For example, the um, the Lockerbie crash, when basically uh, a fellow named Thomas Thurman, who had CIA connections, was supposed to have planted evidence which implicated McGrahi, uh, the who was imprisoned for the attack. Evidence was planted which implicated him falsely in the attack. These things do happen is what I'm saying. They're they can be relatively well evidenced. We're we're inferring it here, but there's there, there's substantial evidence of these things happening. Now, um yeah, you're right. Please please do tell me. And it, it, you you are you were just about to talk about the fact that there is evidence bizarre as it sounds. It's very well sourced in your book that United 93 and I think it was United 175 were both flying past their official crash times. An extraordinary thing. Please go on. Well, uh, let let me put this this way. F- before we go on that track, which is basically very bizarre, let me just go briefly over the three main crash sites. The first one is the World Trade Center. So we are told mm-hmm. the two passenger aircraft cr- crashed there. Then the next crash site would be the Pentagon. We are told that American Airlines 77 crashed there. And the third crash site is in Pennsylvania, on which we have been talking. Now, what is interesting is that the FBI admitted in a letter to a court, not just in the papers, but a letter, a legal document presented to a court, that they never formally identified the debris of the crashed planes. I have to repeat it because it might sound absolutely incredible. The FBI admitted formally that they never identified the debris of the crash sites of 9-11. Well, this is the first time in United States history of airplane, airplane crashes, as much as I understand, where the debris of an air crash were not formally connected to any plane. And that in a criminal operation. You have to think it twice what it means. Yes, and this would normally be done by... Um, we, we think of these planes as American 11, United 175, uh, American 77, United 93. These are the, 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 the call side. These are the, uh, the names of the flights from, uh, from location to location. But the job of identifying uh, which planes were, were supposed to be crashed would be done by uh, looking at tail fin numbers and you know uh, the, the numbers of parts that need, would regularly need to be replaced, which had serial numbers. And this wasn't done. Yeah, basically, I mean, we are not talking about here some some uh, 
some formality, some uh, some academic question. We have to um, yeah. we have to understand here, and I'm I I may be a little bit uh, a little bit finicky about that. However, one should remember no, no. one should remember that each aircraft is assigned even within one day to various flights. So a one aircraft may be assigned in the morning to flight one two three in the afternoon to flight 234 and the evening to flight 345. There is no way usually for the passengers and mostly not for the crew to know exactly the identity of the aircraft because they only work on flight numbers. So when a crew goes into an aircraft, they know they are going into flight uh, 123. They don't care what is standing on the tail of the aircraft. And they don't know exactly uh, about this tale. Uh, they, they don't care about this number. However, when an aircraft is crashing, it is absolutely it is absolutely important that a connection be made between the debris and the physical entity which crashed there. Otherwise, you cannot connect it to a flight number. You can only connect it through the physical entity. And then from then on, you can connect it to the flight number. You cannot do it directly. And because the FBI did not do it, you cannot claim, and nobody can claim, not nobody seriously can claim <coughs> that these flights crashed because there is no evidence that these flights crashed. That yes, that is remarkable. And that, that, and just to just to clarify, that's not uh, that's not you you claiming that there were you know as some as has been kind of wildly and probably kind of propagandistically almost to make people who question the events of nine eleven make look silly. Uh, some people have put about a notion that there, there were no planes. It, what you're saying is the uh, the planes that are supposed to have that that sorry that did go into various buildings and into the ground are maybe not into the ground were not formally identified as being particular planes. Yes. That gives us a basis then to talk about the fact that a, pla- a plane bearing the call sign United 93 and another plane, I think, bearing the call sign United 175 were seemingly in the air and flying past the, the official crash times um, uh, into the South Tower of World, the World Trade Center and into the ground in Pennsylvania. Well, not call signs, flight numbers. Sorry, sorry, uh, flight numbers, yes, sorry. So, uh, uh, some people in the United States, it's a group called uh, Pilots for 9-11 Truth, I think. They have discovered a few days, a few years ago, and I, I, I wrote about it a, a chapter in my book, that two of the 9-11 flights, so-called, have been flying past crash time. Now, the documentation for that is uh, has been uh, is official. It is officially uh, available and f- can be found, but it is not, of course, not uh, promoted by the main, main mainstream media. The documentation shows that and I should just say that these these documentations were actually lodged with the 9/11 Commission. They were from, as far as I remember, the Department of Justice and 
the airlines? They are basically, as I showed you in my book, uh, for flight 93, there are three sources, independent sources, which suggest that this flight was uh, located about 500 miles away from Pennsylvania, seven minutes after the alleged crash time. Uh, I don't want to go into the details of this information. Anybody can read it. I've got it here and I'll, I'll just say that it, the, the way that it worked was that messages to aircraft uh, would go, would be dispatched and they would, uh, their la- their point of going to the aircraft would be from a locate would you know the, the the message could come from anywhere in the united states but it would be sent to the aircraft from a place on the ground that was close to the uh, plate the, the location in the sky of the aircraft and the, so the point is that at 10 past 10 in the morning uh, seven minutes after uh, United 93 was officially supposed to have crashed. A message was going from um, a, from a place in Illinois, which was like 500 miles from Pennsylvania, to this air to United 93. This ought not to have happened. And there is other evidence. For example, a a Colonel Robert Barr, who was p- uh, part of the Northeastern Air Defense uh, sector. Basically, somebody in the United States um, uh, Air Forces was 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 worried that United 93 was circling around Chicago. So basically, there was another location where United 93 may have been flying. Yes, exactly. So uh, these facts are there, documented. Nobody has uh, nobody has uh, rejected this information or said that information is false or fabricated. Basically, we are talking here about inside information, which I would not say proves, but very strongly suggests that these two flights were airborne past the crushed time. And uh, this um, two, we don't know about the other two airlines, uh, the T2, I'm sorry, the two air, other aircraft. American Airlines uh, Flight uh, 11 and 77, they may also have had doubles. So what we are talking about is the theory that each of the 9-11 alleged uh, death planes had a double, which may have been used to carry out the attacks. But this is all conjecture. What I'm talking here in this interview are facts which can be uh, which can be cited and everybody can check. Yeah, be, and should be treated as um, uh, neutrally as evidence. And again, w- with uh, the presupposition that uh, it's not us who has to prove a case, but instead the United States government, and that it has to answer to these pieces of evidence as well. Okay, I mean, I think it's a natural thing to say, uh, to say what I've just said, that they have to present the evidence. But still, you know, there's always a tension between saying we don't have to kind of prove a theory or even advance a theory 
but these pieces of evidence can sound kind of like deprived of meaning without uh, without another theory in which to put them in context at least a possible context otherwise they sound like you know just anomalies or whatever so i will i, I will invite you to talk bearing in mind all those qualifications just about um uh, operation northwoods which was an example of what we're supposed to believe could never happen of the united states uh, government planning to uh, do damage to kill its own citizens well anybody who would like to to see that that the united states government had plans of these kind of operations should just uh, google operation northwoods but i would not like to spend t- time here on that sure what is uh, for me more important because i'm coming a little bit from the from the legal from the legal sure. uh, community if you want in in law and in human rights law and international law there are norms now these norms we can refer to norms because these norms are applicable to every government now let me begin, begin with the international law international law says that the, that the attacks of 9/11 were a crime against humanity and anybody who would like to know what a crime against humanity is could look at the charter of the unite of the international court of uh, of criminal court and you can read exactly what it means now every state is obligated to cooperate with other states in investigating crimes against humanity and bringing the perpetrators to justice this is an international obligation of each state the united states did not fulfill that obligation because it did not bring any of the perpetrators or instigators or facilitators of that crime to justice so united states is on it defaulting on its international obligations it is not my obligation or your obligation to fulfill that right by discovering the perpetrators it is the united states who has not fulfilled its international obligations and should be in fact taken to uh, taken to uh, to account for this for for this failure which of course it doesn't because many countries don't don't do not want to offend the united states government uh, afraid of the united states government and so forth but we the normal people we should uphold we should uphold this obligation and say we have no obligation whatever in this respect it is the us governments who has this obligation and we are entitled to draw conclusions from the failure of the united states to fulfill these obligations we are entitled to take political conclusions such as that the united states government is complicit in the crime this is a this is a plausible conclusions which everybody is entitled to take is nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. so when when you see a person running towards you with a knife on the street you are entitled to presume that he wants to attack you and if the united states government is failing to produce proof about this crime committed on its own soil it automatically becomes a suspect it is nothing wrong to suspect the united states government 
of a crime against humanity, if it refuses to investigate the crime, if it fails to bring the people to justice, and if it does everything to um, to prevent the uh, the elucidation of the crime. It's very normal. It is not only normal, it is basically our right and even our duty to consider the U.S. government as complicit, at least as a, as a suspect. I think um, I'll finish up maybe by saying that it, it, there's tremendous complexity in the event of 9-11, which is kind of, uh, which we don't see uh, because because we're kind of looking back uh, with a kind of simplified, cleaned up version presented by the media, I suppose, and by, and by governments. And uh, I think we've only been able to get into into a, a very small amount of the, um, the the story here, and um, and I respect your um, non inclination to talk about uh, broader theories because um, simply because it can be a distraction. Um, but there's <laughs> there's there is a tremendous depth and kind of um, surprise in that book, uh, hijacking America's mind on nine eleven, which. I would encourage people to engage with and also, as I say, to to engage with some of the um, underlying documentation, which is which is which is there is very shocking and surprising and ought to make an impression. You said one thing here in your last words that this is a very complex thing. I don't think after having worked there on 9-11 for 15 years, I think, in fact, uh, the entire story is much simpler than one thinks. It is basically a fairy tale, a fairy tale told by a government. If one looks at it from this perspective, it becomes very, very simple. There is nothing, basically nothing, which stands any scrutiny there. It is basically everything is is a lie, is, is a legend. Now, if one accepts if one accepts this uh, paradigm, it becomes basically like a story from Thousand Nights and Nights. And we can call it the story of Alibaba and his 19 minions, because basically the story is so absurd that it would not even fit to a Hollywood thriller. If you would, if, if you would submit to Hollywood a script on 9-11, they would reject it because it would be not credible. It would not be credible to have 19 amateurs who cannot fly the Cessna to jump into a Boeing 75, 757 or 767 and find their ways through the skies and uh, outsmart the American Air Force with small knives and keep all the passengers docile as sheep. Anybody who would uh, uh, make this story as a Hollywood thriller would be thrown out. So it could only be managed by huge propaganda. And it was very, very useful. This propaganda is basically the core of the story of 9-11 is basically this propaganda operation, not the execution, which we don't know basically how it was done. The, the propaganda operation is basically what is interesting. So that was it. That was Elias Davidson. Um, remember, patreon.com slash Roy O'Connor. If, you uh, if you've listened this far, maybe you've got something from it. Maybe you can throw me 
a bit of moolah. Thank you. And the music in this show is actually an arrangement made by Elias Davidson, who's also a composer, and he arranged a an Icelandic folk tune called, and you'll have to pronounce my, forgive my Icelandic pronunciation, Voldatakur. Here it is in full. <laughs> 